Thank you, Nigel, and thank you, Richard. Uh, I enjoyed the blast from the past. Had to dial back on some of the Graham Kendrick ones there. I was getting too carried away. I thought, got to keep some voice for the rest of the evening, but uh, thank you. This series revealed that we've been looking at has been an opportunity to get to know more about the Father through the work of Jesus. And uh, in John's Gospel, uh, there is this encounter with the man who was born blind. Probably one of the least likely candidates to see anything. And yet, this is a story that, as it's unfolding, teaches us so much about sight. Have you met people like that? People who perhaps physically have some limited sight, and yet they're able to see far more clearly than many others with 20-20 uh, vision. I think Thompson was a man in our church family like that. Uh, gradually lost his sight, and yet he saw far more clearly than many who have no physical problems with vision. And as I've been thinking about tonight and praying uh, for uh, myself and for us, I've been praying that we would see. Would you like that? Would you like to see something? Uh, not talking about something that you'll see physically, but maybe something that you would really like to see in your own situation. I'm going to pause for a moment before I pray, and it may be an opportunity for you just to ask God to show you something, to reveal something that you feel uh, is hidden. So let's be quiet for a moment, and then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer before we turn to this passage. Lord, we've been singing about light and sight and thinking about these themes that uh, say so much about who you are. And we come to your word as people who need your help to see you and to understand for ourselves. So show us Jesus. Give us fresh glimpse of his power to penetrate those things we can't make sense of. Make your word real to us. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, uh, this is, as Richard has said, a fairly long chapter, 41 verses, very involved. It starts with the disciples discussing this poor beggar, this blind man who was born like this, and... Uh, Jesus heals him in the first few verses. He doesn't ask if you want to wander into some of those other uh, blind receiving sight passages. You can check out to see how many of them, but certainly blind Bartimaeus cried out, have mercy on me. But this man makes 
No comment whatsoever. He doesn't even appear to be wanting to be healed, but Jesus does it. It's the sixth of seven signs that John records, and it's the one closely linked to the promises about what the Messiah would do, because you see before John's gospel so many promises of of what Jesus, what the Messiah would do when he came. Isaiah 35 says, your God will come, he will save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. And think about John 1, the prologue as he introduces Jesus. What does he say? John 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. So without asking, this man is healed. And then a whole series of conversations take place about what happened that at times verge on comedy. There's just uh, odd lack of insight at times, questions that seem uh, bizarre. And uh, this most unlikely candidate gains crystal clear vision while those who ought to be spiritual guides for the people become increasingly dim in their sight and their understanding. So much is going on. As, we, as I've been thinking about this, uh, we met this week to plan our Chinese uh, weekend away in the North Coast at the end of May and thought, John 9, what a great passage to look at with a group of Chinese students who I think over the past year have been growing in insight and seeing more of who Jesus is. But it, it's taken a long time because they, they're born in a context where there, there's absolutely no insight about who Jesus is. This is the first time for many of them. And it's wonderful. And we've been thinking about them and their, their parents and how they would react uh, and the pressures upon them in a context that's quite challenging. And, and anyway, that's what we're going to do at the end of May. So... How are we going to tackle it? Well, three main characters that I think will tell us uh, some lessons uh, about what God is like. The first from the disciples, then the Pharisees, and then the man himself. And the disciples tell us a bit about pain and suffering. And then the Pharisees on spiritual blindness. And finally, this poor blind beggar on how to have spiritual insight. And the point of the passage is not about suffering. The point of the passage is about sight, but this is where the story begins, uh, and it reveals uh, perhaps some blind spots, uh, as well as the obvious point that blindness is a terrible loss, and people, no doubt, who encountered this man recognized the awfulness of his situation. But the why question is always attached to suffering. Could be somebody you know who's gone through a painful situation and their question is, why me? Why has this happened? Why this problem? And often there's no obvious answer. But here the disciples assume an answer. And what is it? Who sinned? It seems like an awful assumption to make. 
confronted with this picture of suffering, they get into this kind of discussion. Is he reaping the rewards of bad parents? Or did he do something wrong before he was born? Apparently the rabbis did have this theory that you could sin in the womb, which uh, as bizarre as it might seem, there's still, I think, a thread of that idea present right throughout the centuries, even today. There's still this common idea that if you have a hard life, you must have done something wrong. It might be the result of poor choices, uh, but there is this deeply held idea that uh, somehow has some kind of biblical connection that you reap what you sow. But I want to think about where that notion takes you and think about these disciples as they were looking at this man and thinking, now, uh, who got it wrong here? What's this all about? I think the first thing about it is that it creates pride. If you have a good life and allow this sort of bias to come into your thinking that, that mess is the sufferer's fault, then we can easily reach the conclusion that really our own wise choices have uh, helped us. Our natural in instincts have been the reason why life has worked out for us pretty well. And uh, we become self-righteous. And it also isn't true to the facts. If you know people who are suffering, there are plenty good people who have a hard life and plenty bad people who have a good life. And so it's a very cruel kind of reaction to sufferers. And it fails to explain anything, really. If we just look at human causes, we discover that they're never the whole story. Jesus clearly rejects the whole premise. When the disciples come with these theories, whether it's their own or the rabbis or whatever's going on, Jesus said no. He rejects the premise and he, he clearly points to a far deeper reality. It's not human cause that we're talking about. But what is it? Verse three goes on. It's not human causes, but it's God's purpose. So, what do you make of that? Well, I'm sure, like most people, there are confusing situations in our lives that can be very hard to understand. But we do need to see that there's a deeper purpose at work. And God isn't just responding to human causes, but he is working out his purposes. And I think that has huge significance for us. No matter what sort of mess you're in, what sort of pain you're suffering, the causes of that mess and pain are never powerful enough to explain it. They do not have an explanation that works. Yep, there's causes, and some of them might be my fault, uh, and some of them not. But what is absolutely critical is God's purpose. Verse three makes it very clear. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So 
Here's a question that this passage asks or implicitly asks. Think about that awkward mess which seems to defy explanation. Something that perhaps you're looking at and you think, how on earth has this happened? Could that be the very place that God wants to display his work? That seems to be the implication of what Jesus is saying. There's nothing good about being born blind. There's nothing good about much of the mess that we might try and overlook in our lives. There's so much of life that is rubbish and that really leaves us feeling, what is the point? I can't understand this. Why is this happening? But the critical issue is not the cause, but the good purpose of God. It's mysterious. We may never see his purpose, but Jesus says God is at work. Jesus addressed a, a similar kind of question from the disciples in Luke chapter 13. And I think it should be read alongside this one because in Luke 13 verse four, uh, Jesus says, those 18 who died when the tower of Salome fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you'll also perish. So how do we put these things together? Well, I'd love to know whether the pool of Siloam and the tower of Siloam have uh, some connection, I don't know. We're not gonna think about that tonight. The, the, the word in John is clearly understood as sent. That's another issue. But we do live in a world where things go wrong. And the Bible's big story is that the result of men turning away from God is death. And the world is not working the way it should. And God's purpose for the world was not suffering and mess in order that he might rescue us. But the reason for suffering in this world is because human sin has spoiled everything from buildings that fall down on people to eco ecosystems that have holes in them. And we look at this world and as uh, Paul says in Romans, we groan and the world just seems to be uh, a very perplexing place at times. The tower that falls on people may have been caused by human failure, but it doesn't explain anything about the individuals on whom it falls. Even though sin in general causes suffering in general, I think Jesus denies the idea that individual suffering results from individual sin. So if that's your situation, don't beat yourself up. Despite our desires to draw lines between someone's suffering and their sins, Jesus says, don't go there. But in every situation of pain, there's a place where God has a work to do. And Jesus says to his disciples, repent. You live in this crazy, broken world where towers could fall on you too. but 
your priority should be to do the work of God. Stop trying to blame somebody else or beat yourself up. Rather, believe that God has work to do. And I think without this view, we're given to either anger that says, I hate thee, or angst that says, I hate me, or whatever our response to human suffering might be. Those are all our typical reactions. Neither are right, but they both create more darkness and questions. And here the light of the world says, God has work to do. We must do those works. And the light of the world restores this man's sight. We'll come back to the man who's healed in a moment, but the bulk of the chapter is about spiritual blindness. And Jesus in the very last verse, in verse 41, says that the Pharisees are blind. It's unmissable and awkward. Lots of other people are involved. There's neighbors, there's parents, but much of their reaction is linked to the hostility of the, the spiritual leaders. So I want us to look at the Pharisees and spiritual blindness. What does it mean to get spiritual sight? The Gospel of John has been full of all sorts of uh, insights into deeper realities than the five senses. In John 4, he offers a woman a drink that will quench her thirst for real life. In chapter 6, there's the feeding of the 5,000, symbolizing Jesus' ability to deal with spiritual hunger. And here in chapter 9, this sign points to Jesus' ability to deal with spiritual blindness. And we all know about sight that's not literal. This week, the news has been full of references to the election that nobody saw coming. And uh, that's an experience for, for many of us at different stages in life, the experience of being at school and failing to see the point of study and then realizing the courses of the career that you wanted is not possible until that point. They didn't see the need for that, but suddenly sight dawns. And sight here is the perception of reality, the ability to see things as they really are. And through four conversations in this the work of God in this beggar's life becomes clearer and the spiritual leaders grow increasingly dim. Let's step through them first. The first conversation was with his neighbors who realized there's something happened. What's going on here? They're arguing about whether he was the blind beggar. They mustn't really have taken much interest in him, I imagine. But they quiz him about what happened and he explains that this man called Jesus did this. He knows his name, but he just calls him this man. And then they go to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees uh, question the possibility of this happening because it involved some form of work. Uh, and again, we could get into what was involved in molding clay. Apparently clay and dough are the same word, uh, and they think this is... This is falling outside their remit of uh, acceptable behavior on the Sabbath. And they're saying, well, how can God be doing this since this man broke the Sabbath? And so they put the onus on the beggar to decide. 
What a dilemma that they're placing him in. The onus is on him. They're saying, well, come on, work this out. Who's responsible for this? Can you imagine his predicament? There's no apparent indication about the obvious transformation in this man's life. But something happens through this. Because in verse 17, when he responds, he says, yes, he was a prophet. He wasn't just an ordinary man, but one sent from God. And then a third conversation takes place with his parents who are dragged in to confirm his identity. So they weren't sure, is this really the man? The Pharisees then get involved and finally his parents say, yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. But we're told about these parents that they were frightened of being kicked out of the synagogue. There's a lot at stake. I, I don't think the point here is to be too hard on the parents, but rather to make the courage of the son more amazing. This man, without any qualifications, then challenges the most religious and educated people in the land. And what's going on? There's a failure to see. As we've been reading down through these verses, you see this exchange and wonder, why have they not seen the reality of what is before them? We've read it, so we'll not go back over it again, but do keep it open, verses 27 to 34, and ask yourself, what's happening here? These spiritual leaders exercise such pride. You're a sinner. We're not sinners. How dare you lecture us? What do you know? You can just smell the arrogance and the hot anger. So think about sin and pride for a minute. When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, it's very often not that you didn't know there was something there, something wrong with you. Most people here, I think, raised in the church will be able to say, yeah, we're sinners and we agree with that. But there is something that happens when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and I realize, yes, I am a sinner. It becomes real to me. I begin to see the depth of the corruption of my motives. Even good things I've been trying to do have been shot through with motives for reputation or acceptance. And I realize I'm really not the one who's in control of my life. As the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate what's going on, I realize it comes home to me. I begin to see it. And I think this is conviction of sin. This is what the Spirit does as he opens our eyes to what's happening. And we begin to get glimpses of this life that we thought was so straightforward and yet it's running away from us. This is conviction of sin. I thought I could run my life, but it's way out of control. What's going on? So from agreeing with those things in a general way, it becomes real to me. I begin to see it. I see, yes, 
I need this more than I ever imagined. And along with this comes the beauty of grace. And I realize, God, I had no idea that was going on in my heart, but I see so much more of your grace that's coming in my direction. It becomes beautiful and real. So here's a question. I've been wrestling with this question myself this week. Have you had spiritual sight given to you? As I've been reading this passage and thinking about tonight, that's the question that's been on my heart. Have I really seen who Jesus is? Have I got that spiritual insight? I think anyone who has spiritual insight knows that they are still and have been in the past spiritually blind. I think that's an indication of having spiritual sight. So, at the end, Jesus says these two things about spiritual blindness. He says, I've come into the world so that blind will see and those who see will become blind. What does he mean? This is how Tim Keller explains this. It's not really that people with spiritual sight will lose it, but he says there's people who are some of the most brilliant and successful people whom the world sees as having great advantages. And yet when it comes to the gospel, they're the people who are at a great disadvantage. The gospel says, you are a sinner saved by grace. You can never save yourself. And you need to be rescued by the grace of God. And because of what he did through Jesus Christ, So people who are saved are not the good people, but those who admit that they're not good and need a savior. And the people who are lost are not necessarily the bad people, but the proud people who will not see that they need that savior. And perhaps the more brilliant you are, the more recognized by the world you are, the more disadvantaged you are because there's so much harder for that person to say they are blind. And so I think the first thing that it means is that we need to have that kind of poverty of spirit. And the second thing is, if you say you're not blind, that means you are. I think that's, again, apparently contradictory, but really quite simple. It is obvious if you're having trouble with your sight and you won't go to the doctor, that's the one thing that will ensure it's not dealt with. It's not the only kind of problem that has no remedy. That is the only kind of problem that has no remedy. Last week, as some of you may know, I was returning from a cycle and I knew there was something going on with my heart and so I phoned as anybody would. I phoned my wife and she came to the rescue and Janet picked me up looking gray, feeling awful uh, and was taking me to the hospital and I was busy saying, no, let's uh, leave it and see if we really need to go there. The point is, I knew fine rightly there was something going on with my heart. I was hoping that wasn't the case 
and trying to put off going to the doctor to be told what I knew was actually happening. There's no greater blindness than being blind to your own lack of sight. And Jesus gives them the ultimate eyesight test in verse 41, saying if you claim there's no problem in your life, that confirms that your eyes are not open. The eyes of your heart, as we thought about this morning from Ephesians 1, your guilt remains. So how is this man healed? Look at the man. He was physically blind and now he can see. But the whole sign in John 11 that he allocates so much space to is saying that Jesus can also cure spiritual blindness. And from verse 7 right through to the end, it's about spiritual sight being restored. This poor man, he received the ultimate sanction from the Pharisees who kicked him out of the temple and Jesus finds him. He goes looking for him and he finds him. It's a prelude to what's going to happen in the following chapter as, as the good shepherd seeks and saves the lost and he tells him who he is. Verse 37, you've seen him. You have seen this son of man. And he believes. But the point of the whole story then comes at the end of verse 38. What does he do? What does he do with this new insight? It says he worshipped him. He knew he was confronted with God. He recognized that only God could do this. He may not have been very educated, but he knew the transforming power of God in his life. And his response shows that he had a heart issue. It was at the heart level that he was being dealt with. While the Pharisees were worshiping the wrong things, they had the ultimate cause of spiritual blindness. God wouldn't do it this way, was their mantra. But this man who worshipped the right thing, God himself experienced the only cure for spiritual blindness. If I decide that I'm going to be good and I'm going to clean up my life and go to church and uh, God will be pleased with me and take me to heaven, then I will not see my flaws. I'll be so determined to be that person that God is pleased with that I'll be unable to be honest with myself and the real mess in my life. And if somebody criticizes me, I'll defend my righteousness and shift the blame. And if you live for your own moral goodness, then you're blind to yourself. Whatever you live for, whether it is your work, whatever it is your goal, your children, your home, you will be blind to them it puts you into darkness. But it's only when you begin to worship 
then God becomes the most important thing and his love for you is the measure of his worth, of your worth. As David said this morning, it's only in this identity that behavior is determined because he's the thing that most satisfies us. He is what makes sense of everything else in life. And here's what I want to finish with. When Jesus was on the cross, darkness came down. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was being plunged into spiritual darkness and he was losing the light of God's love that he'd known every day of his life, every moment on earth where he had insight even into people's hearts, he was able to see clearly. He sensed the reality of God on earth, but not on the cross. And he was being plunged into darkness and cut off so that I would be brought into the light. He was blinded to the Father's love so that my eyes would be opened. Lucy Shaw is a poet who has written an imaginary account of Mary carrying the baby Jesus. It's called Mary's Song. And it's a, a wonderful poem which ends with these words. You may not be able to see it all on the screen. But here's what this poem ends with. Blind in my womb, to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth, for me to be born new and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Blind to see our darkness ended. He did that for me. And as we begin to see that, spiritual sight is happening. And may that be true of each one of us here tonight and throughout this week, that we would see the reality of who we are and the wonder of God's grace and worship him. So before we sing our final song about light, let's pray and ask that God would speak to us and open our eyes. Lord, help us all to go to that place where this man was and fell down before you and worshipped Jesus. It's unbelievable to our natural senses that Jesus took my place, that he was plunged into darkness that I might experience the light. And we know that without your Holy Spirit's help, we're blind but we ask that our hearts would be stirred and that you would come and open us up to the reality of our sin and the wonder of your grace where we're able to say, once I was blind, but now I see. And go into this week to do your work as worshipers with all our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.